please keep Genesis 3 um, in front of you. Keep those words uh, out because we'll be deep diving into them. Paradise Lost is the name of a movie not so long back. A pretty grim movie, but I think we all understand the sentiment. Paradise Lost. A time of utter joy when things are going wonderfully well and then vanishes in an instant. The car accident that paralyzes the passenger from the waist down. The banker who was so happy with family and success just went one step too far and ended up bankrupt through an attempted tax dodge. The sports star had it all. The career in front of them and then a devastating injury that ruined everything. Paradise lost in the moment. Genesis 3 is the account of the fall of mankind. The very first sin. Paradise lost. It's the world into which every newborn baby is born into. And it is such a serious uh, account. It's been torn to shreds by the comedian, the Monty Python sketch, the talking snake. But here's the irony. There's nothing funny about Genesis chapter 3 at all. And we'll find that out uh, as we go uh, along. Last week, we saw that this is the fundamental start of our whole belief system. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Remember last week, uh, if you were not here, uh, do catch up on the podcast because this whole series will make sense uh, if you follow through. Uh, the chronological orders we are trying to uh, of, of the Bible through the Old Testament, uh, God's word taught. And we looked last week that life is created by a supreme God. Life is not by chance. It is pre-designed. It's a pre-designed gift uh, by a creator God. Our existence has come about through a life-giving God who created all things. And we left last week in paradise. And now we see that in an instant, everything has changed. We're going to take Genesis chapter 3 in three parts. We're going to take verses 1 to 5, lies, lies, lies. We're going to deep dive into 1 to 5. Maybe 80, 85% of our time is going to be in 1 to 5. Uh, Because it continues today that the lies, the lies that the devil um, would have Eve believe are the lies that we would very quickly believe in too. So we're going to deep dive there, and then we're going to take two more parts very quickly at the end. So let's go Genesis 3, verses 1 to 5. I've titled this Lies, Lies, Lies. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. As soon as I read that, big questions arise, don't they? Do you know what? I'm not going to even attempt to answer those questions for you. What are those questions? Well, what is the origin of sin? How did the serpent fall? Where did Satan come from? Why did God allow such an event to come to pass? If he's sovereign, he has the power of preventing that very first sin. So why did he permit that? And then by implication, plan 
this act, which in turn brings about all the evil in the world. Why? Calvin calls this the opaque mystery. And in a line he says, it's not worth considering. Now, I'm not saying that this afternoon. I think there are things worth considering. But what we have in Genesis 3 is what God wants us to know. Genesis 3 is God's word and it reveals that very first sin. We'll leave such questions and let's have a look at these lies together. Here's the first lie, lie one. And the lie is this, you cannot take God at his word. That's what the serpent says to Eve. Uh, Look in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Look at the craftiness. Look at the subtlety. Did God really say? Look at the serpent sowing seeds of doubt. Did he really say you must not eat from any, underline any, tree in the garden? The whispering deceitful tongue. What is he doing to the woman? He's helping the woman doubt the word of God which in turn leads to doubting God himself. Does God really say that? Sound familiar? Does God really say that about humankind? Does God really say that about how he made the world? Does God really say that of how he intends sex to be? God's word cannot be trusted. Look at the contradictions in it. You don't need God's word today, whispers the devil. Leave it. You're strong enough on your own. And you see what this does? It leads to doubting God himself. Well, is he good? Is he? Is he in charge? Is he for me? Does he speak through his word? Perhaps he can speak to me in any other ways. And I doubt that God's word is good. And I doubt that it is my power source. I doubt that it is a lamp unto my feet. And I doubt that it is honey to my lips. And look how Eve responds. It's a straight bat. Look, verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die it's a straight back from Eve she's resisting but do you see what she's already done look carefully with me on this she's already added to God's word you see if you go back to chapter 2 verse 17 it says this but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die look what Eve says back to the serpent God says this, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. God didn't say that. He just said, don't eat it. Even the very first moment when Satan is driving this deceit through it. Look how Eve, perhaps without even knowing it, adds to the word of God. 
God didn't say, don't touch. Just do not eat. Do you know I can take God at his word? Why? Because it's good. Created all things good. He spoke into the world and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was very good. God's word is the word of life. Creating life. There's the first lie. You can't take God at his word. Perhaps take a note of that. If you struggle with God's word today. Lie two. God is all talk and no action. Hey, he's a a soft touch. He won't carry out what he really says. Look with me, verse four. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. In effect, what's the devil saying? Hey, God won't deliver on his threat. You won't, you will not certainly die. What a lie. Straight away. Hey, do you know what? The serpent says to Eve, there are no consequences. God will not be angry with sin. We hear that lie. A lie that the church has potentially bought into far too much. There is no hell. And what a grim idea, isn't it? If you strip that back, what a grim idea that God would not deal with sin. The perpetrators of war, those names that easily just ring off the tongue, Bin Laden, Hitler, Mussolini. What, that God wouldn't deal with wrong? That there would be no consequences for their actions? Perhaps closer to home, Operation Bullfinch, remember that? The paedophile ring in Oxford? Men preying on innocent girls? What? To say a God's not going to be angry with that? What about the guy that burgled our house just a few years ago? What? That, that, that's okay? There's no consequences for that guy? Here's the lie of the devil. You will certainly not die. God will not deliver on his threat. And we see later on in Genesis chapter 3 that God will. Because God must. Because God is good. He will deal with sin. All sin. He'll deal with all people. All people. He will deal with me. See the second lie? God is all talk and he's no action. Here's the third lie. God is a killjoy. Verse five, let's go. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the devil really turns the screw. Look how he makes this move against God. He's making, him, he's making God out to be the jealous God who does things to prevent those he's created to become like him. You will be like God, is what the devil's ultimately saying if you eat. Look, here's the promise. I, I promise you, you'll be like God. It's a promise, a promise uh, for divinity. And, and how we desire this, don't we? To do what we want to do. When we want to do it, to create our own rules and order. So the 60s. The movement of existentialism, 
By your very existence, you create your own essence. You define who you are, who you want to be. And it's seen in every area of life. And it even echoes in Disney. Let it go. Let it go. What's that favorite, uh, favorite story of someone's in the room? Don't hold it back anymore, says the song in Frozen. Well, the voice, the voice of progressive liberalism. Hey, throw off the shackles of God's unfair rule and order. We are developing in every area of life. God will hinder you. You see the lies coming out and it shouts in movements. It's the big movement of the day, the LGBTQ movement, potentially. I was watching the last night of the proms. I was with my father at the time. It's not something I uh, watch regularly. Sexual freedom is a good thing. They shouted loud and proud and sung about it. See what the devil says. God is against pleasure. He's against us progressing. He's against me having fun. And do you know the lie? It's the lie. And the truth is quite the opposite. Genesis 1, he made all things good. How many times have I said this? He made all things good. And he saw that man was alone. And that it was not good. The first not good. For man to be alone. So he gave him woman. See God, he puts boundaries in place for our good, that we would enjoy him, that we would have much pleasure. Sure, some of you saw the rugby today, uh, the different games. I know there are um, a lot of English in the room, of course. Um, there's one or two Irish as well. Junior Church is taken by two Irishmen, uh, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, and uh, I don't think there's any Scots uh, in the room. Uh, but, oh, there's one, sorry, yes, uh, Johnny's uh, so-called Scotsman. Uh, I'll have a word with Johnny a little bit later. But imagine rugby, the World Cup. Can you imagine it? Let's hey this World Cup. Let's scrap the rules. Let's scrap the boundaries. Do what you want. Go on, if you want to throw the ball forward, go for it. No, no, no. Rugby wouldn't work. No one would have fun. No one could be expressive. No one would be creative. No, no. God puts the boundaries in place for our good, like the rules of rugby. And the lie goes on. God does not want good for you. God is boring and wants to prevent you from having pleasure. God is a killjoy. And look at Eve. Look now, she buys the lies. She buys the lies. Hook, line and sinker. And Adam soon follows. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Look, Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was good for food. So it met her need. It was attractive to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. 
she'd never seen fruit, seen this fruit like this before. Never. She'd never seen it as something good for food, something attractive to the eye, something desirable for gaining wisdom. That's not how she'd seen the fruit. Corrupted by lies. And then her senses were totally depraved. Taste and see. Corrupted by taste and sight. Corrupted by the lies. And in her desire to rebel and to make herself God, she ate. Important we get the essence of sin right from Genesis 3. It's important that we, that we get it right. It's not greed. It's not envy. It's not false testimony. What is, what is sin? It's the direct rebellion against God as we reject him and his word. Do you see that from Genesis chapter 3? Sin is not misplaced love or trust, that, that someone or something has, has wooed me over. Uh, it's why we sing the song, Two Sins. It's not just that I follow something else and I go after that. No, no, it's fundamentally an issue of rebellion. I rebel against the God who's created me and given me everything good. You see, sin is not plural. It is not fundamentally a list of stuff. Uh, that goes against my name. No, no, no. It, it's my entire rejection of God. That's what sin is. Sin is not God's fault. It's my fault. Today I cannot say, do you know what? Uh, I've sinned because of Eve and then because of Adam. I can't help it. And the Bible doesn't let me say it's not my fault. It's like if I gave Johnny a blank check, uh, I don't have any money, but if I did, I give him a blank check and I say, go on, go down to the BMW dealer in Oxford, buy yourself uh, a supercar. Go on, Johnny, you need one. Uh, that red one's looking a little bit old. Um, so off he goes. And the next day I get a call from the police cell. I've been caught doing 120 miles an hour. Managed to crash to the central reservation, smashed into another car. Someone else is dead, and it's all your fault. You gave me the check, and I bought the car. See, it's completely Johnny's fault. What he does with the check, what he does with the car. Sin is completely my fault. It's not God's, it's mine. And sin is not everyone else's problem. You know, on this, it's quite easy, especially in Genesis 3, to look at Eve and then to look at Adam and to look out the window at the world around us. But Genesis 3 demands that I look in the mirror. What do I see? There is no one right. Not even one, Romans 3 says. I look in the mirror and what do I see? Here's what Genesis chapter 3 tells me. And it's grim reading. I see a filthy, dirty, stinking, rotten sinner and it's looking back at me. Sin is not everyone else's problem. It's not about looking out the window. It's about looking in the mirror. And sin has consequences. You shall surely 
die, God says. And that is the right punishment, God says. Let's quickly look at 6 to 13 very quickly. We've looked at lies, lies, lies. And I wanted to spend time there because, in essence, I listen to those lies daily, often. Look at verses 6 to 13. Shame and blame, uh, I've called this. Verse 7, sorry, let's go to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Look at what they do. There's shame. So they conceal themselves with fig leaves. Their eyes are opened to their nakedness. And do you know what happens when their eyes are open to their nakedness? They do not trust each other. Isn't this a sad reality? They don't trust each other. Genesis 2 verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked And they felt no shame. See what they've done. Refused God and his perfect rule through his word. And they do not trust each other. Isn't that highlighted perfectly today? Here's two illustrations. Look at politicians and the bad press they've got. What's the chat all the time? How can we trust them? How can we trust them? See, refuse God and his perfect rule through his word. We cannot trust others. Love Island, so I'm told. A concept of bringing others into the house. As the original contenders, they're in there and then people join the house to see if lovers are torn away from each other. No one trusts anyone. In the house. And Adam and Eve here cannot trust each other. They cannot then trust God. Fear and flight. Do you see that? Adam and Eve choose flight. They hide from God. Incredible that we've turned that around today, isn't it? Incredible that with my friends, what's happened is we've turned that whole concept around and we say that God is hiding. Have you heard that? That if God would show himself a little bit more, then I'd trust. Conversation uh, with a friend recently. Science has disproved God. No, it hasn't. There are some really key Christian scientists. Stop hiding behind such a comment. I can't trust in a God who permits suffering. Stop hiding. Look at what he's done to stop suffering once and for all through the work of Jesus. You see all the world's wars in time. They've all been caused by religion. Stop hiding. Come and see that Jesus teaches to love your enemy. Stop hiding. It's us that are hiding from God. Fear produces flight and we hide from the reality of God. And look, with shame comes blame. 
Isn't this incredible? Verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See her? It was her fault. She did it. Horrible thing is that's quite true. That kind of rhetoric in our house was her. From me to Kerry and from Tommy to his sisters. And then look to see what happens. What does Adam do? It was her fault. And then actually he looks at God and says, it was your fault. Verse 12, the woman you put here with me. The woman you put here with me. So Adam says it was her fault. Then he says, no, no, actually, God, it's your fault. Incredible blame culture. Oh, it was only just yesterday. It's the first time it's happened in our household. We found it this morning, a little pile of hair in the corner of the playroom. If you haven't noticed, Talitha has given herself a little fringe. She's done actually quite a good job. Talitha, why did you cut, or Talitha, did you cut your hair? No, Daddy. Talitha, a little bit later on that night, why did you cut your hair? Word for word, because the scissors were on the table. (laughs) Humorous. Ridiculous. Here's my little three-year-old girl, and she blames the scissors for her new haircut. The serpent deceived me after it was her and then actually it was you look fear it produces flight shame but it also produces fight i'll tell you what's happened says adam and he gets right on the front foot into god's face incredible how true this is of me we either flee wasn't me i know nothing about it or we fight and we blame And we look for someone else to take the punishment that we deserve. Look, Adam and Eve, make no mistake about this. Adam and Eve, they directly set themselves up as rebels against God. There's no foolishness. There's no silliness. They directly sense them up as rebels against God. And then mistrust with each other. Look, let's finish. Look what happens. I've called this verses 14 to 24 curses and a glimmer of hope. Well, there's curses, God's judgment on the serpent. Verses 14 to 15, he will eat dust. There will be a battle with humanity. His head will be crushed. But look, here's a curse. Instead of good relationships, there's hostility. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Look, pain in what should be an utter privilege of giving birth. And then the wrong desire in the relationship with the man. 
Look, instead of blessing, there's a curse. God's judgment on the man, verses 17 and 19. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And so on and so forth. Look, here's the curse. Painful toil of what should have been a great privilege to cultivate the land, to be creative with all that God had given him. And look as well, instead of life, there is death. There's separation. Verse 23, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And there was a barrier that existed right up until the cross, guarded the tree of life. Here's the summary, the ordered world and good relationships that God had established in his pattern of creation have been ruined by sin. Is the world a happy place, Genesis 1? Or is the world a sad place, Genesis 3? And you know, here we are, and we find ourselves right in the middle of both. I mean, last week we looked at that happy place. We looked at that moment of creation and we think, oh, God is good. And we're in that relationship and we see God's goodness through us. And then in a moment later, in a moment later, paradise is ripped to shreds. Any evidence of hope from Genesis 3? Well, yes, there is. <coughs> See, 3 verse 9, God still comes looking for the man. Isn't that good? The Lord God called to the man, where are you? God's there. He still calls for the man. Look at the judgment on Satan, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. I will crush your head. One day Satan will be crushed. 3.16, the woman will give birth. The human race will still continue. Here's the glimmer of hope. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Look, still God cares for them. Compassion, evident amidst judgment. And Luke 3.24, the tree of life is still standing. It's not been chopped down. There's hope and there's life. And you see the glimmer of hope, the beginning of the plan of rescue. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 at the worst of all times. And we will see as we continue in the next 10 weeks that we have got so much to give God thanks for, for sending his son, the Lord Jesus. From now on, we see how God and his word continues to point to Jesus. Jesus is the one, the only one who can make the curses of Genesis 3, can turn them all around into the promises Genesis 1 and Genesis 12 and Exodus 3 and so on and so forth. We thank God for Jesus. We're going to stand and we're going to sing this song that my sins, they're many. They're many. Your sins are many. My sins are many. But do you know, his mercy is more. And if you do not trust that today, you're in Genesis chapter 3 still. There's nothing you can do. And judgment awaits. But if you trust Jesus and trust that his mercy is more, more than even my sins, 
that is the hope that secures me and my future forever in Christ. Why don't we stand and sing these words together? My sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Thanks, John. Mm -hmm.